I invite you to have a seat, friends. And um, Joel and Kelly, I invite you to come forward. At the, near the beginning of the summer, we heard some words from Joel and Kelly about a trip they were going to take, and we prayed for them as a congregation. And uh, here they are back. Well, you've been back for quite a while, but um, it finally works for you to get to share with us just a little bit of what you experienced and how you saw God at work on that trip. So turn it over to you. Um, So I'm Kelly, and this is my husband, Joel. I teach at Calvin Christian High School. And so I had the privilege, or Joel and I had the privilege of accompanying um, a couple who has been taking groups to... uh, East Africa, so Kenya, Uganda, Malawi, that area, for 13 or 14 years now. And this trip was the sixth time that they had taken a group to Kenya. Um, That couple is extremely passionate about helping students, helping young people see value in doing God's work no matter where you are. So it's not as though we brought those kids there because we want them to work in East Africa. We brought those kids there because we want them to work for the kingdom Mm -hmm. and not to sit on their butts and collect money or watch Netflix, but to do something with their lives. Amen. Um, So (laughs) I went on this trip when I was a junior in high school, uh, going into my senior year, and it's very much shaped who I am. And so it was just an absolutely wonderful privilege to be able to go back Um, And I was happy that I got to take Joel with me so he could see that part of me um, and be able to understand some of that for himself. So we took nine students with us. Um, All of those students will be starting their senior year tomorrow in high school. So 17 years old, um, three boys and six girls. And then throughout the entire time we were there, we also had people from World Renew with us. That was the organization we were working with primarily, talking about Um, how a trip like this isn't really necessarily a mission trip. It's more of a learning trip because if you're going to do true work in people's lives, you need to invest over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, it was really nice to see some of the same people I had met six years ago when I was there um, and then to also meet some new faces. So we started our trip in Nairobi, and we made it all the way up to... um, kind of the edge of the Ugandan border. Um, My favorite part of the trip was that stop. It was in Kapanguria, Kenya. We were able to visit an elementary school, which is now also a high school. And then just recently they started a a teacher's training college. And the elementary school that Joel and I attended in, uh, in Granville at Granville Christian has partnered with that school since we were students there. And so to meet those people in their place and um, the incredible hospitality that they gave us and uh, the reasons why they do what they do and how they sacrifice so much makes us realize, even here, just how much we have and how much we don't sacrifice more. Um, The students, the nine students, I'm sure, will be forever changed. You could already see it near the end of the trip the thoughts they were having as they think about careers and colleges and what they want to invest their life in, um, I think is going to be made for the better. So that was our trip. I want to say thank you to you guys, kind of a two-pronged thank you. Thank you for sharing, but thank you also for... um, 
obeying and for going and for investing in the lives of young people and um, encouraging them not to sit on their douche, but to live into the calling that we have as children of God. So, it doesn't matter where. That's right. That's right. All right. Let's, let's enter into family prayer time uh, together, and um, you guys can take a seat again. Thank you for sharing. Um, for those of you who are visiting, we pray from our seats, from our hearts, as the Lord leads us. So let's pray. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. Luke 19, 45 to 48. We're continuing in this series that we've been in in Luke. And this week I looked back at an introduction to the book of Luke that um, Pastor Dave put in as an insert when we began this sermon series. And one of the things that we were reminded of as we started this series is that every text in the book of Luke calls for a response. And so as we listen to the text and as we listen to the message today, we might ask ourselves, how would God have me to respond to his word? And so Luke 19. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priest, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Recognizing Jesus, remember Jesus has been resolutely on his way to Jerusalem and now last week he entered Jerusalem and he wept. Do you remember that? He wept because they didn't recognize the time of his visitation. They didn't recognize him. So recognizing Jesus, waiting for someone and recognizing them. I start with a little story. Sometimes I mention my mom. I want to give you a little update from yesterday. I wasn't able to be there, but this is a picture of my sister, my mom in the middle, and my mom's sister, Karen, my Aunt Karen, on the other side. So Karen, Margie, and Karen. My mom has loved her sister, and my aunt has loved my mom their whole lives, but they've lived far apart ever since they were adults. But once a year, there's a visit. My mom has Alzheimer's, you know, and so she doesn't always recognize people anymore. But yesterday, love broke through. And when my aunt came in the room, My sister said that my mom's face just lit up and she started to cry because she recognized her sister. And it touched her sister. Her sister wondered the whole time coming to Michigan, will my sister remember me? Will she remember me? Yes. Yes. 
that's what it's like when there's a reunion of people that love each other and they see each other and even though they've been apart, there's this connection, there's this recognition, there's this embrace. Recognizing people that have been, you want to see them, you can't see them, but yet when they come, oh my goodness, what a reunion. The book of Luke starts in the temple and there's several references to the temple but in the beginning of Luke it mentions when Jesus was brought to the temple already and I think it's the second chapter and there's this devout man named Simeon he was righteous and devout that means he knew God's story his word he was a practicing Jew he came for the morning and evening prayers and he had been watching And the Spirit of the Lord prompted him to come. And when they brought baby Jesus in, Simeon recognized him and he embraced him. And he held him up and he said, this this is the source of our salvation. He recognized Jesus in the temple. And there was a prophet named Anna. And she fasted and prayed. She never left the temple. She was worshiping day and night, praying and waiting And she, too, recognized Jesus. Now she could go to the Lord in peace whenever the time was right because her eyes had seen. She had seen this one that she had longed for and wished for. And there was this connection, this this um, reunion. Jesus returns to the temple. And we might think, that there would be this grand reunion, this time of, oh, we've been waiting for the Messiah. He returns to the temple because God's people had been waiting for the Messiah, the glory of the Lord, the presence of God to come and be in their midst. And here Jesus comes, the manifest presence of God, And what does he meet with? What happens when Jesus returns to the temple? He was greeted with rejection. He was greeted with those that wanted to kill him. And it really, it isn't just now the religious leaders and the teachers. Now it's even the leaders among the people are rejecting Jesus And he walks in, and that is the way the king of glory is reacted to. Hatred. They despise him. He walks into his own house. Remember, early in Luke, when Jesus was missing, where was he? He was in his father's house, in the temple. And so he's come home, and how's he greeted with this reunion? Not even a stay away or shh, but actually we'd like to wipe you out and off the face of the earth. So Jesus' first action, what does he do? He cleanses out the sellers. Well, who are the sellers? If you remember the um, system of sacrifice in the Old Testament, 
when the people had sins and different things that they brought sacrifices, well, they traveled some distance. And so there were people who sold pigeons and doves and things that were needed for sacrifice, and they could purchase those. But you know what? They were in the way. They, were, they had become corrupt in what they were doing. And so he purifies the temple. It's a symbolic act when he removes the sellers. Jesus' first words. What were his first words? It's important. What are the first words when something happens? We want to pay attention to that. And Jesus says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. My house will first and foremost and always be a house of prayer. Jesus knew the word of God. He says, it is written. How important is it that he models for us that he knows what God's word says? And he wants to see it fulfilled. And he declares, my house will be a house of prayer. And he speaks that over the temple at that time. And he speaks it over his church today. My house will be a house of prayer. How did Jesus feel? This was really on my heart last night. I took a long walk asking him, how did you feel? How did it feel to go to that place that should have recognized you and embraced you? And you walked in to all kinds of corruption going on. How did it feel? How did it feel, Jesus? I don't know. It doesn't say he wept. But I imagine he probably did, or he probably felt like weeping as he walks into the place where it was his father's house, and he comes in as king, humble king, and he's rejected, and things aren't in the proper order. What does it feel like as a parent if you go away and you come home and your kids have had a party? or are having a party, or doing something else. That, like, they've made a mess, things are messed up, there's all kinds of activities going on that should not be. How do you feel? How did Jesus feel? How does he feel today? How does he feel? I believe there was corruption in teaching. And I believe that's why Jesus entered into this teaching right away and every day. Why do I think there was corruption in teaching? I believe that because God's word is authoritative. And so if the teaching was of God's unpolluted word being handled correctly, there would be authority with it. Didn't they recognize Jesus' teaching as authoritative when he spoke? What was it about it that people noticed? It was the authority with which he spoke. And so I believe and we know that the Pharisees had added all kinds of things. They had kind of created their own kingdom and added all kinds of rules onto God's rules and had um, created a a sense of pride and, and they were in charge and the people were oppressed because of this teaching. When false teaching enters the church... 
the people suffer. When God's word is proclaimed, people rejoice. It is good news. I believe the teaching had been corrupted. And when the teaching is corrupted, the crowds, the people are vulnerable. That's why teaching and leadership, we're supposed to lead with diligence. Watch out, be careful. If you're a teacher, you're going to be held to a higher standard. And so the people are vulnerable. And Jesus starts trying to and continues what he's already been doing, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Jesus prophesies. He says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. He quotes there in that one little sentence from two Old Testament passages One is from Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, and I want to read that for you. It's important. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God, in his design, didn't plan. He planned a particular people, but it was a diverse people from the start. And those Gentile courts where the sellers were, they were... They were interfering with the nations coming in to have joy in God's house of prayer. Maybe they were being belittled. Maybe they were being pushed out of the way. Or maybe just because of the carnival atmosphere of it, they were distracted. They were distracted from the worship and the presence of God who sets all things right and reminds us that his promises give us peace no matter what in the world is happening. And I mean that. No matter what is happening in the world, when we're focused on God's promises, when we're in his presence in worship and prayer, he reminds us that all things are under control, that we have a king who's watching and bringing about his purposes on earth as we pray. And so Jesus prophesied, my house will be a house of prayer. And then he references from Jeremiah and the den of robbers. That whole passage there from Jeremiah 7, from 1 to 11, is talking about God's people living a dual life. What happens outside the temple is completely different than what happens inside the temple. And they come in the temple and they're saying, we're safe, we're safe, we're safe. And he's saying, I am the almighty God who sees you're making this place a hypocrisy. It's a warning. And there's more warning and prediction of destruction. And so Jesus, in his grace, he comes in and prophetically moves out the sellers. And it's a call to repentance. It's a call to purity and holiness and to follow God's law. 
Jesus teaches. He tells them the kingdom story to a crowd which scripture says is hanging on his words. The crowd is hanging on his words. What is the kingdom story? The kingdom story is about creation, about a creator, God, who creates a people for intimacy. Everything is right in the Garden of Eden. It's a place where he walks with his people, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day, where he gives them dominion. And what happens in the fall when sin comes? Everything goes to chaos. And yet, the king calls a people, Abraham and Sarah, and he says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to be your God and you'll be my people. I can imagine, I can hear, I can just almost hear it. This is what Jesus is talking to them about. He's saying, I, there has been a plan all along for redemption. Do you not see that the kingdom of God is in your midst? Jesus is standing there. He's standing there. He's right there. Where is the loving reunion? Where is it? He's calling the people. He's throwing out a lifeline. He's throwing out a lifeline. He's teaching them about the king and his kingdom. I want to ask you today, what does Jesus see? What does God see? What does the Holy Spirit see when he looks at the church today? Gold Avenue Church? Monroe Community Church, West End, Servants, the churches of the West Side, the churches of North America, the churches of the world, what does he see? Does he see leadership that's diligent, teaching that's biblical? Does he see a church that's a house of prayer? Why is he looking for that, folks? Why does he want us to be a house of prayer? Is it because we have um, some religious routines that we need to check off the box? No, it's because of the joy of the Lord. It's because when we come into the house of the Lord, when we come into that communion and prayer with God, what happens is we remember that there's promises that all things are going to be set right eventually. And that even in this moment, he says, I will be with you. I will be with you. He brings peace and joy. He restores love. He creates this unity. Was there unity with these den of robbers? No, that's why he had to purify it. He wants his church to be a loving, unified body that is a witness. It's a counter witness to the world. The world is divided. There's war and rumors of war. And what are we called to do? We're called to pray. We're called to love. We're called to enjoy the presence of God. We're called to start into and grow into this relationship that he's invited us into that will go on and on and on and be consummated when Jesus returns. Church, what does Jesus see? When he looks at your life, what does he see? What does he see this afternoon and on Monday, on Wednesday, on Saturday night, Thursday afternoon? Are we a people of prayer?
Are we people who are enjoying this relationship with him? Are we a people who are knowing and growing to know the one who loves us by being in his word, meditating on it day and night? Are we growing in this relationship with him? Do you hear his invitation? Do you see he loves to teach? He loves for people to learn, to know the one who's called and given hope. Hanging on his words. They were hanging on his words. When I think about hanging on words, I asked Dane the other day, what do you think of when you think about hanging on some words? And um, he suggested NPR and storytellers, particular storytellers on NPR and how the the stories are crafted in such a way that you just kind of hang on the story. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember Paul Harvey and the rest of the story story. Yeah? Yeah? He'd tell a story, and then you'd just hang on it, and then they would take a break, and then they'd come back for the rest of the story story. There's this neat twist to the story, something that maybe was unexpected, delightful. You're hanging on Paul Harvey's words on the radio. Professor that um, we really appreciate from Calvin Seminary has been struggling with cancer. And he recently shared the story of how that he had to go for a um, repeat, I think it was a CAT scan or an MRI of his brain after having stem cell transplant. Was having dizziness, thought that maybe um, there was a recurrence. He was praying there wasn't. Had to go underneath um, Michigan Avenue from Butterworth over into the Lemon Holton Cancer Center. He came back, and you know, digital reports, things are more available quickly than they used to be, more quickly. And anyway, and the nurse told him, well, it says um, that your report is stable. And he's like, what does stable mean? What does stable mean? He said, all afternoon I just kept thinking, what does the word stable mean? What does this mean for me? He was hanging on the word stable and he was waiting for his doctor who would come in to say stable means there's no sign of any recurrence of cancer. You're stable. Hallelujah. Hanging on words. Why were they hanging on Jesus' words and why does God want us to hang on scripture? Because it's a story of a cosmic battle Bigger and more thrilling than any story on NPR. Because God's words tell of an amazing creator and his love for his creation that at one point is going to all be made new and restored and made right. There's a twist on this story that is more delightful and scandalous than any Paul Harvey rest of the story story, that we as sinners could be the righteousness of Christ and have an inheritance as children of God Almighty? That is a story to hang on. Those are words to hang on. 
we have a prognosis, an outcome, a prediction spoken over us where there is no more cancer, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears, ever, ever. Those are words to hang on. Hang on. Hang on the words. There was recently a story I read about an author who, a prolific author, who had written many, many books. And he, as he was dying, he asked his son-in-law, read me some words from the book. And his son-in-law looked at the books and the house of books, and he said, Dad, which book? And he said, the book, the Bible. Friends, that is hanging on the word of God. And I wanted to show you something that I found in scripture that I thought was just so cool. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you are going to go, oh, okay. But I'm telling you, this is neat. All right. The word hang on. Hang on. Ekramame. To hang on. They were hanging on. Ekramame. His words, Jesus' words, the root, the Greek root word of that is this me, to hang up or suspend. That word hang on, they were hanging on his words only one time in the whole Greek New Testament. The root word, almost, almost exclusively, it's used to talk about Jesus hanging on the cross. We hang on the words of the one who hung on the cross to save us from our sins, to give us a hope and a future, who says, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations, who teaches us and calls us to hang on his words, because just as surely as Jesus came back and entered the temple that day, he is coming again, and he's our sure hope, and we can hang on his words. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that you love your children, that you give us your word, and we pray, make us a people of your word. Lord, that you give us the vehicle of intimacy with you in prayer. And Lord, we pray, make us more. We celebrate the ways that you've already made us a house of prayer, and we say, make us more a house of prayer where there will be joy for all who will come in. We pray this, Jesus. In your holy name, amen.